This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. The reason I said wow just now is because immediately it struck me as I was about to do my guest introduction and welcome you guys to listening to the show, that we're at the 85th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. And the reason that that's particularly significant for those folks who've been playing along at home is there's only 170 minutes in this movie, which means that this insane project has now finally eclipsed halfway every <laughs> my guess is so so nice to give me an applause for on the other end of the mic that is wow oh my gosh that is uh, so every episode now we are rolling into the finale and at the 85th minute we're only five minutes away from the beginning of the coffeehouse conversation but that's enough about that we're halfway through we've ripped off the band-aid of 85 episodes we can keep going mm. ladies and gentlemen my guest today is uh, I'm really thrilled because he's a podcaster. His podcast, the Cultural Capital Podcast with Anders Furs and Eloise Ross, who you would have heard on the show recently, is a really excellent uh, podcast. And one of the things I like about it um, is that you kind of get this great eclectic taste, a bunch of tastemakers sort of talking about um, films and, and cinema from all over the place. But they talk about it um, really well and also... Um, some really ripping interviews on there. There was a recent one with a filmmaker whose name escapes me, who has just been like 12 years between drinks, a documentary filmmaker. Who was that um, great person? What was her name? Uh, it was uh, Genevieve Bailey. I think. Genevieve Bailey. Uh, she, yeah, she did um, the myth film. Um, uh, <laughs> his, bra- his brain is too full as well. So, Sorry, yeah, it's over flying. So Genevieve Bailey is the, the interview that I'm thinking of, and it was just absolutely uh, a fascinating insight into a documentary filmmaker who was like, documentary films will take as long as they take to exist, which is a really great thing. My co-host today, let's get to him. His name is Andy Hazel. Um, we have, by osmosis, uh, become actor a film festival hosting fellows. Andy is a journo. He writes for the Saturday paper. Um, and he's also got another podcast, which is so good. Um, that, and I, and I'm so glad that he actually got to do a few intros around the country from what I read as well for twin peaks, the return, uh, podcast. Thank you, Andy Hazel, for joining me for an episode of One Heat Minute. Thank you very much for that introduction, and apologies to Genevieve Bailey if you're listening. The movie was Happy Sad Man, and she's most famous for doing the documentary I'm Eleven. I'm Eleven, um, and, and apparently going back for some more, some more yes. I'm Eleven, some sequels maybe, like the Seven Up series. I'm Twenty Two, maybe. Let's see what. Yeah, see what they, I, well, yeah, we did talk about Seven Up. Yes, that's <laughs> that's in a very different conversation. Very different, Andy. Wow, I just literally struck me. I was like. God, the person who gets to do this halfway show is going to have to deal with some gush at the beginning. But thank you oh, so much again. No, thank you. No, you've earned that gush, man. That's um, <laughs> 85 episodes. Not many podcasts make it that far, let alone twice that many. So I think you're onto an extremely good thing here. I, I think I think so. But the 170, it is finite. So it's like the it's almost like the the end is in sight. You know, you can see it. And look, if 
you happen to be listening, Mr. Michael Mann, episodes 164 and 65 are all are waiting for you. They are your episodes if you are here. The last five credit ones, who knows? Um, they might just be, <laughs> if, if Michael Mann does come on the show, they might just be me screaming for five episodes um, that he actually made it here for the final ep. But now... Compulsory listening. <laughs> thank you. Fingers crossed. Everything crossed. But now Andy and I are going to check out a minute, a great minute. It kicks off with a beautiful frame. And uh, in the last episode, you would have heard I was talking to Hamish Ford, who's um, uh, the senior lecturer of uh, film media and cultural studies at the University of Newcastle. I had the great pleasure of Hamish being my tutor when I was there. Um, and uh, sorry, my mentor. And then obviously my um, uh, my honours supervisor when I did my honours degree. He's also the head convener of Bachelor of Arts. The reason I say that is this last frame, I sort of picked up on it in just the last seconds of talking to him before. It really feels like a cathedral in this moment. Exa- yeah. In the, yeah. Way, in the way that the light is here as we're paused at exactly one hour, 24 minutes, or the 84th minute, we're going into the 85th minute now. Um, I just, I'm struck. I've just been watching it for about 10 minutes while getting ready to chat to Andy. And I'm like, wow, this is so damn beautiful and on this blu-ray it's so crisp you can see absolutely everything so we're going to watch this minute it has been the minute where nate played by john voigt has been warning neil you he's it's you know in a very fraternal way you've been warned this is a point where this is the point of no return the cops are on you the heat is around the corner there's nothing else you can do and so here we are the cops know that the crooks. Uh, the cops know that the crooks know about them. The crooks know that the cops know about them. It's just this fun moment that we're about to collide in. So, let's check this out together. Andy and I are going to watch the minute together. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and we're just going to unpack it for you. Justine. Justine. Where are we going? Okay, where are you going? Out. There it is. Andy. Yes. So it, I, so much to talk about. I, I just – it's so weird like when you're younger and you have no concept of – I know it's like strange to say it. I'm gonna, it's going to sound weird saying it up front, but it's like you have no concept of drugs or the concept of self-medication in any way, you know, and, and that that's alcohol. You know, that's sometimes with people with painkillers, and I think in the United States – probably much more rife than it is, you know, painkiller usage, or at least maybe because of the population's bigger, you just hear about it more, I guess, is possibly uh, a thing. But I never really noticed it until my sort of revolving examination of Justine in this moment needing to self-medicate just as she did at the beginning of the film. You know, she was taking Xanax or some sort of, you know, antidepressant, it feels like, at the beginning of the film. And now, again, she's sparking up a, a little a joint here and just sort of centering herself because that, even though that wasn't a conflict, the lack of communication between those two is significant enough. You can see her body contorting. It's a great dress. So you can see, um, 
her back muscles all change. Diane Venora's back muscles, they're such a, a phenomenal little kind of butting of heads. Again, these two, the masters are having fights where everyone is extremely civil. Um, so, yeah, just a great, a great minute all around. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really interesting to come straight after that scene with Nate because there's an amazing jacking of stakes in that previous minute to this one. And, you know, he can hit and miss, you can't miss. This sort of thing. And so it's been built up. And then you, you correctly, I totally think you're bang on the money when you talk about it being a cathedral. It's almost like a confessional in a little booth or something. This, yes. so you, And that's one I no, really noticed watching through Heat again was this juxtaposition of scenes and the way they're put together. And so you have this this um, very personal connection. It's not, not about syndicates or institutions. This very personal connection which is being built through, like you were saying, and we're five minutes away from this you know, incredibly important scene. And so since characters are so key to the, dr- the dramatic tension here, to have this scene particularly after that one I think is really, really notable. Um, and something else I, missed, I noticed was the, the, the columns in the car park, very cathedral-like, you know, these sorts of Doric columns. And then you get this similar sort of columns um, in when you cut through, cut into the domestic scene. As soon as you walk in through the door, the way that there's so many lines, there's so many, so much structure to to every single room that we have or every every location here. And, and it, from the very first time I watched it, sorry. <laughs> oh no, I was just going to say you're, you're so right, and it's 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 he. The reason I was sort of smiling, wanted to jump in there and interject is there's a great moment later when they do have a conflict. He's like, you can have your husband's dead tech postmodern bullshit house. And it's like the very, the angles and all the architecture is really super pronounced and it, it does come in there. But oh, I just want to jump onto what you said. It is, it is totally a confessional. And it's almost like yeah. the priest is get you know, Nate is very priest-like in, in that moment and sort of, you know, it it's weird. It floats between fraternal, the sort of brotherly, you know, family care and, and, I don't know. It's like, it's not quite paternal because it feels like paternal is more didactic. Like you shouldn't do this. He would step over the line. Whereas it still stays in that area where it's like, you, this is a really bad idea. And I agree with you the the, the juxtaposition of scenes is so much about, uh, and, and I only really now notice it um, at a theatric, in a theatrical space, because it is such an incredibly tension inducing film for so much of it. And so the scenes where you either A, get to have a laugh or B, in this scene, you sort of like what that, you know, you're Vincent. You're like, where are you going? Like, where are we going? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And then you're, where the hell, where are you? Oh, so, I'm sorry. Where are you going? Like, it's kind of, it helps deflate you from some of the tension that you're feeling towards this collision point between the, 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 the cops and the bad guys. And, and in this case, well, not really bad guys, just the cops and the crooks. Um, and yeah, it's so interesting the way that it deflates everything in this scene. Yeah, but then also it's it's another jacking up of stakes at the same time as it being a fairly quiet scene with just a couple of lines of dialogue because um, one one thing that I really noticed watching through was, first of all, the mise-en-scene, and I've got so much to say about the way that this kitchen <laughs> yes. is um, – there's so much going on here because like, there's very few places in this whole film. There's so much of it is beautifully put together, but there's – um, there's only a couple of locations I think where it's where it's, where it even seems vaguely chaotic, but it doesn't even it just seems chaotic in comparison to every other place that we've been because so much and, of and what I remember is just like long floor to ceiling windows, endless horizons, gorgeous clean cars, beautiful. Every window is so well cleaned in this film, and, and now when you see a messy dishes, it's like what? And it's yeah, it's the, literally the most domestic space in the entire film, the most sort of banal domestic space. You've just got this really. You know, it, it, 
you know, th- this looks like a normal person's kitchen for once in this entire film. It feels like a little bit of normality. We've been in a kitchen before. We've seen Neil and his three plates or his two plates and his one, you know, one or two cups. Um, but yeah, this is just things being all over the place, messy pasta dishes all over the place, drying out. And Vincent's yeah. like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, and then if you look to the right of that sink, you see an aquarium and then a pet, a pet, a fish, and it requires attention. This is not a, a an animal or a pet that you can have without being home a lot. And so clearly his job is keeping her away from the home. So she has an awful lot of duties to do, and that she's not fulfilling them is suddenly a source of unusual tension. It, it's, um, and it's so funny. It's it's literally for all the machismo and everything that is in this movie. Um, it's the first like real moment where you see Vincent. Like you, you, if you were describing Diane Venora's character just seen in this movie, like 10 ways, I would guarantee that none of them are domestic, like (laughs) not a single one. And it's in this scene, it's such a funny little cue of like that one missed domestic cue is like, what? Like she didn't, usually I'm home and the house is pristine again. The house is this pristine place. And so the mess is... You know, it's it's that chaos sort of filtering through this house that she loves to keep so pristine. She knows where everything yeah. is. It's so funny. No, I love I love also how this the scene of the sink is a throwback to a previous conversation where they had where she so says this is not sharing, this is leftovers. Yeah, you can literally see the leftovers <laughs> in the scene. I, I was gonna, like that is that is Sunday nights bolognese dinner, like just you know thrown haphazardly into a sink. I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> super digression here, but it looks, you know, we talk about authenticity and heat. That looks exactly like my brother, older brother's sink in the share house that he lived in. And he would pay me to wash the dishes because he didn't want to. He'd pay me 10 bucks. He'd pay me 10 bucks. He was like, and after a while, Andy, he started that like leave them longer. Cause I was a young, as a young kid, I was a kitchen (laughs) hand. So like I would clean their kitchen pristine, you know, washing up for two people is not like washing up for 500, but I remember after a while, they just would be more and more disgusting. And after mm. I was like, I'm not doing it for that money. It's not happening. Right. <laughs> so in this moment, <laughs> little aside, he walks upstairs in the, you know, this postmodern home. Yeah, um, and also notice um, uh, the mirror behind the door, very feng shui. Oh, is it? <clears throat> yep. Is it? Yeah. yeah, you don't like dead ends, black, you know, um, like <laughs> these sorts of places. You want to try and keep the light moving around, the energy moving around and those things. So I feel like that maybe was something that was put there years ago when they were in a better place or, you know, he had somebody else decorating. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing he would do. I think Vincent's living in someone else's feng shui. That's what I think is sad Ooh, about this place call. is that this entire place, none of it's Vincent. Like that's why he takes such umbrage with the television being watched because it's literally the only thing that's him in this house. Nothing about him as an individual says – Every, every he's such a functional person and even his suits to a point they're not they're not as well tailored as neil's like neil's are more you know um neil's look like they're slightly cheaper you know vincent's are more like opulent they're you know every, mm-hmm. even the everything like that is about function it's about you know tipping the scales of the people that he's going to be intimidating whether it's white collar crooks or whether it's actually crooks like um you know albert um who's you know running chop shops and whatnot and i just when you look at the house as well that's why it's one of those great you know again one of a beautiful sort of contrast or juxtaposition he doesn't belong in this house neil's house suits him him Mm. And yeah, out. I think if it was made now, he'd be living on Uber Eats and he might have a cleaner that came in once a week. Be, that, he wouldn't need a, Yeah, He doesn't need these other sorts of things. No, he doesn't need this is exactly anything. what I imagine like it looks like for somebody who says that they're, they're living with angst and they need their angst to keep them sharp. Yes. 
This is there's like detritus everywhere, personal yeah. and domestic. And mm. he doesn't. Um, he couldn't live in a house that was full of all the trimmings that made him comfortable. He's literally got his one little outlet and that's it. He's living in yeah. someone else's space. It keeps him in that constant state. But yeah. I don't think he's annoyed that the dishes aren't washed here because the dishes aren't washed. He's like, there's some chaos yes. in this place, more chaos yeah, some... than, than I need. What's mm. what's going on? Yeah, it's a great like, yeah, little... Is... But, you know, in this moment... Talk about a performance that happens just physically, just in a pure in a pure gesture sense that has nothing to do with the face. You know, mm. Diamond are in the scene. She's just like he comes in, he asks the question, and you watch him. He's quite passive and sort of, and and the reflection of his face is kind of like, oh, you look, you know, nice. You can see there's almost a look on his face. I'm trying to frame it up so Andy can see it at the same time. Oh yeah, yeah. But you can yeah. sort of <laughs> see. In the corner, you can catch his a glimpse of his face in the in the top right hand frame. It is twenty one seconds uh, into the minute if you're playing along at home, and you can see Pacino's face. And there's like a softness that comes over his face, like, "Oh, where are you going? Oh, sorry, where are we going?" There's sort of he's trying to, I don't know whether it's like readopt the poise that, oh, you know, yep, we're in a relationship. She probably didn't wash up because we're going somewhere, and I've forgotten that we mm. need to be going somewhere. But you watch him ask the question and when she doesn't respond his face goes from sort of glum and sort of confused to and it hardens up he looks at her takes yeah it's it's just minor i love both of these guys de niro and pacino for just how much they're doing with a glint of an eye with a slight fur of a brow with like a scrunch of just one eye to make anything more intense and he asks out so great she just is phenomenal. Yeah. She's just phenomenal. 30 seconds in, great dress. She looks extremely tense. Her back is all muscular and she's like extremely stoic. She's not having any of what Vincent's saying right now. It's great. No, she's ignored him already, like as he's been saying her name so far in this <laughs> yeah. minute. Hasn't even taken a glance at him. And so as soon as she says that, we uh, he looks at her and he's – what would you what would you call that expression on his face well, there, Andy? It's it's moving towards Hangdog, but it's not there yet. I think, um, it's 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 just a little like a disappointment. But I feel like he's also at that process remembering their previous conversation, which was left unresolved with this sort of tension where she realizes that you know that you know even though they agreed that she was going to be having to share him with his job, the the toll is just too much for anybody, even with the most reasonable expectations of a relationship. But actually, what I love about this, and I um, is in this particular scene when he's looking back in, he's taking up. We've got a beautiful use of the thirds, like dividing the screen into thirds. And this whole minute just has a beautiful use of that. So if we see this, like the first time we cut to him and he's, and she's, he's listening to her say out, then we cut back to his expression again. He's taking up a quarter of the frame. So he's like getting squeezed out of his own house by the, by the, by the way that this is framed. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and there couldn't be, if you're splitting even this frame 19 seconds in into thirds, it couldn't be more pronounced that there's a distance yeah. between them. It's yeah, like big empty whiteness. Empty yeah. whiteness. He's there and he's sort of out of focus, and which is exactly what his character is at the moment. He's out of focus in his entire relationship. And he's only there in reflections. That's all he is to Justine. Mm. It's just a reflection of what a husband used to be. And I think you're spot on where it's like the, uh, the echo of the previous scene is now coming back in. And so when he realizes it, and after she says out... I'm just going yeah, to get to back. Get to that second. Like, yeah, that that <laughs> pushed out of the frame. That face, 
Yes, he's been pushed out of the frame completely. It's the it's a complete opposition of that. But here, I think he's kind of. There's only other one one of the scene that I can think where he kind of looks as, um, I don't know, kind of like resolute to the fact that it's gone. Is in the scene after um, uh, after Lauren, so Natalie Portman's character, attempts suicide, and they're in the in the hospital waiting room. And he kind of has a look on his face that is comparable to this, where she's like, "Can we make mm. this work?" And he's like, "You know, yeah. it's just almost like pro- <laughs> pro- I'm going to go do my job. I'll pro- be back. Prob- we'll finish this probably not. Yeah. And you know, yeah. it's it's you as you said, all I am is what I go after. It's so good. <laughs> and 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 so you're right there when she says that, and he just goes, "Okay, like he he that's a battle he can't win right now. He's kind of." Size it up, and he's out the door. Yeah, and there's yeah, yeah. Um, and her yeah, her so her the way that he chose to shoot her from the behind like this is really interesting. To have her look over her shoulder, and then she as if the conversation was about to continue, but he's gone. Yes. Um, and he's always going to be gone. Like he leaves every scene, you know, to go off and do something extremely high stakes. Like in the next scene after this, he's going to a helicopter. Like, yeah, he's driving um, along. He's in a hel- driving along every way, getting picked up in a helicopter in another car. What I love though is. This is this is such an it's so indicative of their relationship, as you said. When she when she said everything, in some way she's trying to get a rise out of him. In some way she's wanting him to be definitive, and she's going, "I want you to be definitive here. I need you to give me something." And her saying, "Going out," as in without him, where am I going out? If that's not a if that's not stoking the fires for a fight, I literally don't know what anything else is in a relationship mm. like she's really stoking the fires for a fight and when he leaves the look on her face in this frame it's like 36 seconds in she's like i was fully expecting him to be in this moment for what do this. you mean you're like yeah, for yeah him to like explode into a, yeah she she wants what's going to happen with ralph <laughs> poor ralph yeah um she wants mm. what's going to happen with ralph very shortly she wants the argument now and when he when he turns around she's like do i say anything and then she's defeated They've both defeated. Yeah. She's like, oh, this is it. Except that posture is then sort of strained. I love that sort of, I don't mm. know, she does this. Like, yeah, it's slightly contorted. Back. It's yeah. very strange. Really yeah, contorted. Very unnaturalistic. And she look, she gets down and then she's self-medicating once again. She's just sort of like, mm. okay, this is my moment. I need to get back into my zone. Also, it's, a, it's an interesting form because it's a very tiny joint. The The sound of her trying to light it is not the, the satisfactory sound of a Zippo, like a metal thing. It's a pathetic little plastic click. <laughs> and you don't even see any smoke. Like it's not even – No. It's just there's, like, there's, no po- there's no satisfaction of the post-coital cigarette at the beginning of the film. This is like someone taking a hit and this is what I need in this moment. I've just got to get focused because if he won't fight me and I'm going to leave, then I'm going to do something even bigger. She's going to mm. do something bigger stakes. <laughs> Poor Ralph is the stakes. Um, she's going to do something bigger stakes, but Vincent's like, okay, she's going to leave. Yep. Here it is. I love these shots in this kitchen. I love Same. these shots yeah. in this kitchen because it so is. The... Sorry, no, you go. Please go. We're at fifty-five well, seconds like... into the minute. Yeah, so it seems like you know what we got from the last two scenes was like, can he be a partner? Can he be a satisfactory, um, you know, half of a relationship? And so for him to do something domestic, it seems to be what she wants and what she what she gets out of Ralph in the one scene we see of, you know, of him later. Um, so here he's Ralph like, will at least stick around for breakfast. <laughs> he will, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he might even make it, you know. Which, <laughs> but we, in this case... We don't know. We don't know. But we do know, can, but can um, 
and a B, domestic. And he contemplates it for about two seconds here and then decides he can't. And then he <laughs> leaves. We just missed the beat. There's like by like a fraction of a second, which I really like is that he turns the water on like he's going to fill up the sink. And yeah. then he just like slams it down and goes, no, nah, I'm not doing this. Yeah. This isn't me. I've told her this isn't me. I'm resolute to the fact, you know, I'm the down slope of my third marriage. Mm-hmm. This is it. I'm not gonna. I'm yeah. Not, I'm not. I'm not the. I'm not the guy who stays home and washes dishes, while my wife oh, yeah. goes out partying. No, and we've even got a hint of that at in, in the mise en scene here. There's a weird sculpture on the wall of like an empty suit. Yes. Which is like the man, you know, the status, not the not the person. And there's all or this, something like that. And there's all <laughs> this weird. There's weird art too, Andy. If you like, I'll just direct. Yeah. You like over there's this weird woman with red eyes who kind of is looking judgmentally, and then underneath that. Besides this sort of sculpture of something with no suit, and I just love movies that actually take time to make a kitchen like function or like in an organized slash disorganized way. Um, but and then there's a face mask photo. There's like a, a photo of a mask. I don't know if it's a death mask or whatever, but it's underneath this other face. So it's this weird few little clusters of this postmodern art there that's always sort of I don't know feeding into the weird. I don't know, feeding into mm. the weird mood of the entire scene. I don't know. I don't know what it's what it's about. Yeah, it's interesting because all, all everything on that wall is at adult height. Like, so it's, it feels <laughs> yeah. not quite family. It feels much more like a couple, like a functional working couple. And also, we have jars of ingredients for food that you actually suggests cooking might even take place here. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it's not the sort of house of two professionals who are never really home. It's like no, she's definitely she's, a lived-in place. But. She she doesn't seem domestic at all, but she clearly is. Like she's the mm. at this stage she's sort of a stay at home mum. We've got some flour up there. It looks like some pasta, some rice. But I love that there is a lot of booze. There's booze yeah. everywhere. There's gin on the, ta- you know, the the booze is floating up from a booze shelf and then booze up on the the top shelf near uh, Pacino's head. I just mm-hmm. I've always liked I've always liked this kitchen and of, of course because it's a Michael Mann kitchen it has to have a weird blue besides the blue of the fish tank <laughs> yes. it has to have a yeah. weird blue uh, window somewhere mm. i don't know if it's outside or whatever to sort of color in um the the down you know the very drab you know uh, halogen downlights that are in that kitchen to light it up to do all the normal functional domestic tasks yeah and it's interesting that we actually get the um sound of exhalation um from previously in blending in with the sound of this water in this one yeah it's like a nice little yeah it's a, yeah the nice a little, little nice little merch. sound cue nice little sound mm. cue that's really yes yeah, that's really uh, that's a nice little. Um, I find with so I've had like a re- a mini revelation over the last few weeks. Um, is that um, oh my god, I've just lost his name. So all that jazz, Bob Fosse. I think mm-hmm. that Edgar Wright, the maker of Shaun of the Dead and 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 um, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, and you know the rest of the Cornetto trilogy, and obviously Baby Driver. I think she, I think. If you would talk to Edgar Wright today, he would tell you that Bob Fosse is one of his fav- favorite filmmakers because Bob Fosse, like from a technical, like from a technical standpoint and a formal standpoint, and the way that he does weird little mash cuts and plays, you know, tweaks with sounds and things like that, in in you know the crazy synergy that is all that jazz, which is just like a masterpiece. I think Edgar Wright takes some of those things, like you see little 
match cuts of sound and you know flipping a match cut to 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 different locations to make things feel as we saw at the beginning of this minute um you know from that sort of cathedral underpass into the hard lines of this room and also sound like like a a breath into a water tap is like would be like an edgar wright 101 Rod, robert rodriguez does it a little bit but it's all very showy and i like in michael mann movies that he kind of does those tricks but you really have to be acutely aware of what you're watching to kind of pick it up you're like oh that that exhale did go beautifully into that breath. Whereas like, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's, that's what I feel when I watch it now. Like I looked at Bob Fosse and just like, especially cause all that jazz is a musical and things are feeding. So like, this is like, I don't know, there's this, um, perpetual motion that's happening with things. And it's so frenetic that you're like, you can, couldn't keep up with how many things flow into match cuts flow into the next thing. Yeah, but I was, but yeah. I was watching it and I was like, I think someone needs to ask him, if you're listening to this podcast and Edgar Wright, maybe even I'll tweet him, like how much does he love Bob Fosse and how many times a year does he watch all that jazz? Because it's just <laughs> that same that same poetry and motion that he brings to his uh, his films is all there, that that obviousness. But yeah, it's, I think Michael Mann has it too in spades, but it's just, I'm going to do it as subtly as possible. I think maybe he thinks the craft is to make it invisible unless you're an obsessive <laughs> who like watches this movie as many times as I have. Yeah, but even like the, the the way that we had that previous scene, you know, where they're basically um, where Nate and Macaulay are pretty much in each other's face, like sitting in very closely in this huge environment. Yes. And then it, we move to this comparatively small environment. and There's so much space between the two characters, as well. It's just this this constant you know um, tension release, tension release going on, which just kind of propels everything. Which I think you really need if you're going to be making a film this angsty and this mournful. Then you really need to be able to, and you know, of course, the main thing people remember is the is the action scenes between those scenes. But you really need to be able to drive it with some sort of skill like that. And I think this is a really, really interesting example of, of using tension and release in these sorts of ways. I think I'm forgetting the action. You really? know what's you know what's you know what's weird is because um, you know the first thirteen minutes, fourteen minutes of the film are. Everything that leads up to the opening heist, but that's not all action. There's like a little bit of, you know, what what inspire movies that they call like tradecraft, but I think it's appropriately, you know, it's an appropriate word to use, like criminal tradecraft of like, I'm gonna go and buy, you know, explosives from here, and it introduces characters doing doing their job really well, and in that sort of, and then I guess it's probably the last between like, I think it's like minutes eleven to fifteen is the actual heist track mm, yeah but we're at the 85th minute yeah yeah and yeah. there've been a few little action flurries that keep because it's a you know it's a high stakes sort of crime thriller action movie but i i feel like without the tension that you're talking about the mournfulness that angst with these little confessionals where you kind of i don't know you're railing against your instincts because your ego is saying things and with all that without any of that none of the action means a damn thing yeah yeah and yeah, so, uh, it's a very, yeah, it's a really good point because I was trying to think. The very first time I remember seeing this was like in the I was like I saw it in the late nineties. I didn't see it again for another ten years. And whenever I thought back to it, the main things I remembered were these scenes of action, followed by these really weird scenes of like the bunting falling down, or yes. the car with the dead bod, dead driver hitting a wall very quietly and gently. These little coders to these intense scenes of prolonged action. Um, and then you know, I completely forgotten about all this sort of characterization that was going on between it, apart from of course the diner scene. Yeah. Um, and so it's that's what is really fascinating watching it this time. Is this thing so much, so much beautifully observed character and so much gorgeous. Um, the writing, particularly the writing between um, Diane and and um, and Vincent, 
is just stunning. Like their previous conversation, the last scene we saw with them about you know the baby in the microwave, the you're like the way she describes him as being like this sort of tracker in the wilderness that she can't cut loose. You know, it's it's yeah, it's just it's really really potent. Yes, mm. and I think one of the things I love is um, that apart from that, apart from the poetry of that scene, which needs it. Because uh, and I love that scene so much. Their previous scene, and which is all their scenes and how they interconnect and tell their story through this movie, is so wonderful. But I love that scene so much with Diane Venora's character in the previous moment because she's so calculating, and it feels like in a moment like this where she's been left at home and she's been doing the dishes, you can imagine her having said that entire conversation to him. That's what mm. I love rewatching it. I just feel like that's the conversation that your partner is practicing when you're not home. <laughs> like if, yeah, exactly. If, you, yeah, if yeah. you're failing in a relationship and your partner is getting the shits, that's where they're like frustratingly washing a dish when you're not home, the dishes for themselves. And they're like, these are all the things I would love to say to you, um, but I've never had an opportunity. So I, I just, I think that, um, I think I love that so much about those these two in this scene, but I also like how everything else is paired back. Like nothing's yeah, yeah. over, you know, nothing's too wordy. In the dialogue scenes that feel like they're really potent, but I'm all for the scenes where everything's in the action. You know, you're getting mm. so much in the portrayals, but I think, you know, so much le- less is more. Like say less, say less, do less. I think there's one thing that maybe carried through and really resonates in um, Robert De Niro's work as a director um, his film, The Good Shepherd, um, which stars Angelina Jolie and Matt Damon. I just love so much watching that movie again, maybe uh, refracted through my consistent viewing of Heat because um, Matt Damon feels like he doesn't say as much in that movie as he does in 12 movies, even in the Bourne movies where his character is essentially saying nothing. So much of what he's doing is just in how he projects himself as a person. He's just sort of keeping it all here. Man, a few words. These men... Yeah, uh, men a few words all over the place in this film. Yeah, and this is really interesting because you do have get the feeling like you were saying that this is something you've rehearsed or this is like extremely serious. But this is also the what we're seeing in this minute is the consequence of living with all that. And so I think this is like a totally crucial scene because not only does it feed into the, the you know the the path of their relationship, but it feeds into the stakes of the diner conversation, which is really the whole film hinges on. Is this what's it like to what's the personal toll of living in these these particular lifestyles that they've chosen to? And these like are men who can make choices. They're not like you know people in difficult positions making one last you know attempt at you know a heist before going straight or something like that. Even though that may be the stakes of other characters, for these two, it's like a totally committed life. And so I think it's fascinating to see the the dark side of that or the toll of that because you you know what we what, what a lot of other people remember if we don't remember if you don't remember you know being the action sequences um uh you know this is there's so much that goes that leads up to that and it's not just strategizing working out you know who's the right man for the job it's like the this sort of stuff which i think is beautiful because barely any other films would have the courage to do that i think no i agree i think this is finally but I also love even when two minutes with each of these separate entities, these characters who feel like they're so – in some ways they're so far apart in some ways they're so close together. Um, I just adore that Nate in his way, even though it's so passively said and so calm, is basically saying all the words to Neil that Neil espouses as his own moral code. The heat is here. This guy is on you. Heat, 
he, you know, you can't miss once. He can miss yeah. and still get you. You can't miss. And he just is so pat. Like, in that moment, Nate, who's being the fraternal one, is getting the cold, almost like the cold shoulder from Neil. Neil's like, he's made up his mind. He's like, yeah, mm. good. Mm. He's, he's smiling. His ego's there. And in this scene, conversely, Justine is doing the cold shoulder to get the attention. Like, she's spent, yeah. she's literally saying, like, everything about how she's acting right now is saying, don't go. Don't go out of the house and confront this guy. Like, be a person for five minutes. Like, he knows you're on the tail. You're going to have to sort of take stock and think about how you're going to approach this anyway. Don't go. Yeah. And yeah, Vince- and also because we've just learned in that previous scene that he's burned through three marriages. <laughs> and you know, and for the from the most part of this minute, she's literally forced into a corner. Yes, you know, and so she's like, she she really doesn't have much agency at all. So all she can do is, you know, is try and is be strong, and also or as strong as she can be, and say, don't go. You know, let's work this out. Like, can you at least be a human being? Be a human being, and and I'm really tr- like, in her way, she's trying to bait him in. This is her drawing him in. She's not being open. She's being closed. And if that detective, that detective impulse that's inside him, is like. I need to be inquisitive and I need to ask questions. She's trying to draw him in as she's desperate and even contorts like, Oh, I want you to, mm. I want you to have this conversation with me. I want you to be in this exchange. And he's just like, Nope, I'm not. No, Cause she's tried opening up to him before. Yes. And here we are. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so you've got to try another tactic. <laughs> she's a great tactician. She's an amazing mm. tactician for a wife. Like she knows this guy. I think, yeah. some, I think some people, um, you know, uh, some people criticize, and I think the more I talk to folk in this podcast, the less that previous conversation gets c- criticized. It's like if some people watch it the first time, they feel like it's contrived. And the question I always ask folk is exactly what I said to you. is like, imagine if you if you had a partner who was just never around and you were rehearsing the thing that you wanted to say to them a hundred times. Do you reckon it would be pretty spot on? Do you reckon you'd have it down pat? Like by the time you finally got them in front of you to have the conversation, you reckon it'd be pretty spot on? I go, I reckon it'd be pretty spot on. Mm. And and for yeah. such an intelligent and eloquent and like really um, acutely observational person, like she clearly like she picks him apart. She knows him. She's done her own de- she's she's done her own detective work on Vincent Hanna's entire personality. Um, she knows all the things to say to try and push his buttons to try and have out, have this out. And yeah, the fallout is. Am I going to do this domesticity? I love this. We're on the cliffhanger. Is he going to be domestic? Is he going to use that ivory brand? <laughs> yeah. How much do we want to see him wash dishes? <laughs> oh my god! It'd be a different movie. I think I've got that same. I think I've got that same dish scrubbing brush. But um, uh, yeah, like that's you know, it's it's just this mess, and he's no. Nah. Look, there's a, there's a lot of potential props from this film. Um, do you, do you own any of them? Are you in? No, I don't. I don't own any props from Heat. I would love, I, I would love, love, love. But there's not, they're not around. They're not, like I've, I've eBayed. Maybe you're better at eBay than me, Andy. But I, like the, the most recent ones I saw was um, uh, Russell Crowe did that auction, you oh, know, The yeah, Art yeah. of Divorce. That had insider yep. memorabilia. And I was like, oh, yeah. insider, that'd be great. But it was like, you know, millions of dollars. I was like, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to spend that much on that movie. But I'm trying to think of what props I would want from this movie. And I think if I had to pick a prop... Would it be a mug from the diner scene? Yeah, maybe a mug from the diner scene. Um, I'd want, I want Neil's bloody shirt. I want Neil's bloody oh, shirt. Right. I want Neil's yeah, bloody, bloody shirt that he takes off. Um, or I want the Jeremy Piven shirt that he takes. 
Like he's like, give yeah. me that shirt. And Jeremy Piven sort of like shyly takes it off. Um, I don't know. It's a really weird one. It's a really weird one. It's like, I feel like yeah. I'd want maybe just the helicopter. Could I have the helicopter? <laughs> could, I have the, yeah. could I have the helicopter to Fair fly enough. around LA? <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. It's a, it's a weird, it's like, it's a movie that's got, it's so, as you said before, the mise-en-scene is so good because I think that's one of my major, I don't know if it's, it's not, it's certainly not an unconscious bias. It's probably a conscious bias. It's something, there's nothing that'll take me faster out of a film than really like glaring, just glaringly bad mise-en-scene. And that's not to say mm. independent films do it badly because I think there's some really, films that are made for like, 10 bucks or comparatively if you look at moonlight um as just a film that yeah you know the texture of every space in that film feels completely authentic lived in um and you know even sort of weirdly incongruous with um uh, uh Mahashala ali's house um at mm. the beginning because he's like this like really super domestic nice clean house and he's a guy who's like out in the drug dealing you know <laughs> dealing out in the streets he, he should he feels like he should live in um little's house which is like more of like a ghetto-y <laughs> sort of house um but mm. there's nothing about that movie that i would say is you know it's like a four million dollar movie I, I would if if this kitchen didn't have the same you know the mismatched cups i love different wine glasses i love that they've got like one clear cup on the shelf here and then there's these weird blue cups down the shelf i love that even though things should you know be lined up the phones on the bench and things don't fit i don't know i love the chaos of really good set design to make it feel like it's lived in because it it's yeah. so spartan yeah. unless it's spartan for spartan's sake like with neil i just i would hate it it would just feel like all the organic greatness of those scenes that are between them would just be cut away because you're focusing on what is that yeah. in the kitchen well i think i think it particularly stands out because of everything around it i mean there's so much of the structure like even in this particular scene you've still got like the the straight line of the cupboard the straight lines of the shelves there's still straight lines all over the place which he seems to love doing like this the splitting up of the frame to give this sort of extra depth and i'm sorry extra width and they sort of feel you know particularly when you get scenes like at the drive-in where you get these bend shots and these sort of staggering scale, um, and so many people happen to live in on, on hills and have, with have beautiful views and sort of stuff. So you you're constantly being thrown into this 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 very distant horizon. Whereas here, it just feels so beautifully tight um, and and just perfect for the scene that we just saw. Well, folks, eighty five minutes, Andy. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you on to talk about thank you. heat with me. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Um, guys, if you want to follow Andy cultural capital podcast or the twin peaks, the return all over the place. Yeah. All over the place at Andy Ricky. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Andy I, I'm there like 10 hours a day. Was <laughs> it for chat? Only, t only 10. Well, one of my, one of my jobs at the Saturday paper is to do the social media. So, uh, well, there you go. That so you're yeah. allowed, you're allowed to be on there for, for 10. Otherwise I'd recommend getting you one of those locks that just blocks you out of Twitter <laughs> after, after four hours of use. You've got to go, dude, you've got to get out of there. Oh. Um, um, but <laughs> Andy's podcast, Cultural Capital Podcast, is excellent. Um, his co-hosts, Anders and Eloise, um, are, are also going to be guests of the show. Um, so um, have a listen. It's an excellent podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the show again, Andy. This has been awesome. Um, yeah, thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. You guys have been a huge part of the show. Um, and uh, please keep rating, reviewing, and uh, all of that stuff. It's super helpful. And just recommending to your friends. If you know there are heat obsessive out there that haven't heard the show yet, 
what are you doing? Tell them we're here. We've got they've already missed half of the show. We've got 85 episodes to go. No, I'm just kidding. They're there for you guys in perpetuity. But um, some phenomenal guests coming up. Um, a, a whole bunch of the uh, the coffee scene is already recorded. Um, uh, so, you know, the coffee house scene has already been recorded on some episodes. Um, the, the 90th Minute of Heat are recorded live um, at the Sydney Film Festival this year. Um, so um, for some folks oh, who great. are there. So that has already cool. been recorded. There's a couple of great minutes coming up, some huge guests. I was stoked to have Andy on the show, but there's so much, so much more. So... Thanks again, Andy. Garth Franklin, thank you, sir, for our web design, as always. Paul Davies, our man with our awesome theme. And thank you, guys. And we'll catch you on another episode of One Hit Minute just around the corner. Cool. Thanks, man. And congrats on making it past halfway. Oh, thank you, Andy. Thank you. (laughs) 